From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The origins of our universe are coming into focus, and scientists don't always know what they're looking at. They're super red. They're really bright and they're really red. And we haven't seen objects like this before because we haven't been able to detect them with previous telescopes. News today from Boulder of a major astronomical discovery. Then, pinching, pleating, folding, turning. The art of the wonton with Denver chef Penelope Wong, who's up for a James Beard Award. You know, the dishes that I cook, a lot of the dishes from my grandmother's kitchen, it's kind of my way of holding on to them. We visit Wong's prep kitchen at the start of Mile High Asian Food Week. Growing up Asian American in Denver wasn't quite as, for lack of a better word, cool as I guess it can be now. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We're going to start with an important cosmic discovery, courtesy of the new James Webb Space Telescope. Scientists, including astrophysicist Erica Nelson of CU Boulder, think they've identified enormous galaxies that have never been seen before and which upend our understanding of the universe. Nelson is co-author of a paper out this morning in the journal Nature. Erica, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I love talking about space. Uh, me too. <laughs> uh, and tell us in a nutshell what your team discovered. It's a kind of monstrous discovery. Yeah, it was really exciting. So I guess to, before I tell you exactly what it is, I feel like I need to tell you about the early universe. Okay, the early universe. The start of all of time and space called the Big Bang. Yes. Which actually was intended to ridicule the person who came up with it. Fun fact. Um, the, but, the name Big Bang? Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't Yeah, because they thought it was so preposterous that the universe started all in one infinitesimal point in space that they ridiculed the person who came up with it by calling it the Big Bang. Of course, now that is a, the term of art. Yes. Okay. It is the accepted... It is the accepted way that we think the universe began. I'm so glad to know that. Okay, know. take us back. So about 14 billion years ago, the universe began. It was the beginning of all of matter, energy, light, space, time, everything. All of the matter that became humans, dogs, cats, houses, planets, stars, galaxies, all started at that one moment. Encyclopedias, chia pets, all everything. of it. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, all of your favorite items, silly putty, you know, everything. <laughs> um, and so you start with all of this, this matter, um, and then gradually you begin to form structures. Um, and it takes a long time to form cosmic structures like stars and galaxies because they're really, really big. And so it, we think it takes or we thought it takes billions of years to form galaxies. So to go from that Big Bang to something that looks galactic. Yes, okay. exactly. Something that looks galactic. But you found this actually happened at a much faster clip. Yes, much faster. We, we thought that galaxies took billions of years to form. But in fact, we're seeing that these galaxies could form in like 500 million years, which doesn't sound like a short period of time <laughs> to an average person. But they had to form 100 billion stars. 
That is so many stars. That's the same number of stars our Milky Way has. And our Milky Way has had billions of years to form those stars. And it completely upends our understanding of how objects formed in the universe. It upends our models of cosmology if this ends up being correct. Might it tell us something about how quickly our own galaxy formed? Or was that just a different time closer to the Big Bang when stuff was happening faster? We think that it's probably the latter. It turns out that there's just a much greater diversity of objects in the universe than we had anticipated. Okay. You know, we kind of thought that everything was like our Milky Way, and it, it turns out it's not. There's all these incredibly surprising, weird objects out there when we actually have telescopes that are powerful enough to look at them. Okay, so this isn't just about the speed with which this occurred. But the the shapes, the bodies, there are just different things in these other galaxies, these early galaxies? You know, everything is different. And we just are beginning to explore this new realm. And so many things have been surprises. We've seen these, these black holes that we never thought could exist. We've seen these incredibly early galaxies. Everything has just been so surprising once we actually have the eyes to see it. Now, I use the phrase monstrous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier. Tell me about this idea of monsters. These galaxies are monsters. They have eaten so much gas in order to produce the number of stars that they have. Oh. And it turns out, actually, which is surprising to a lot of people, almost every galaxy in the universe has a supermassive black hole monster that lurks in the center of it. Okay. And it eats gas and it eats stars. And so basically, actually, every galaxy has a monster inside it, including our own Milky Way. We have a monster at our core, too. We do? Mm-hmm. We do. Should I lose sleep over that? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk about how you were able to perceive any of this. Uh, it has a lot to do with a space telescope and an <laughs> upgraded one, doesn't it? Yes. We have this incredible new space telescope. It was launched last Christmas, uh, December 25th, 2021. It was launched at 6 a.m. Minnesota time, which is where I'm from. And I actually made my parents get up for the 6 a.m. launch and drink champagne with me uh, while jumping around watching this telescope not blow up on the launch pad. Mm -hmm. The Liftoff went remarkably, and it got out to its location a million miles away with the ability to see the most distant universe for the first time. Um, and, and this is the Webb Telescope. This we'll is say. the James Webb Space Telescope. So uh, for Christmas, unwrapping a gift meant watching a launch for you. Yes, uh -huh. it meant unwrapping the most spectacular data I have ever seen in my life. And it has been able to perceive things that its predecessor Hubble has not, right? Correct, yes. Both because it can see in the infrared, um, which is redder light than the Hubble could detect. Okay. Um, and also because it is much bigger and much more powerful, which is what made it such a technical challenge to launch. Now, how can you establish the quickness with which an early galaxy formed? I mean, first of all, how far away is this? <laughs> yeah. For things that are this far away, we measure in light years. Yeah. We don't measure in, you know, miles or anything. So these things, some of them are about 13.5 billion light years away. Wow. 
That's really, really far away. The notion that anything could detect light from that far away is remarkable. It's remarkable. And then the idea that you could divine from that something's age is even more remarkable. I mean, without getting like maybe two in the weeds, how does that happen? (laughs) You think I'm going to get in the weeds? Uh, No, the... That is your job, isn't (laughs) it? It is my job. (laughs) Yes, it's true. So the telescope's ability to see that light and also the ability to infer what that light means is they're both remarkable and sometimes unbelievable. So what we see are fuzzy dots. That's what we see. We see fuzzy dots of light in different colors. And from that, we have to infer everything that we want to know about the galaxy. So I I know that the color of light can tell you what the makeup of something is, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a clue. That's a clue. It can also tell us how far away something is. Uh And right, we're astronomy isn't like other sciences. We can't bring galaxies into labs and put them on scales and we can't poke them with sticks to see what they do. So everything we know, we have to infer based on the light. And so we do that with different models, often based on machine learning or artificial intelligence. And we synthesize the information from all of this light to figure out the physical properties of these objects. And once you've done that, Is there any part of you that closes your eyes and tries to imagine what it would be like to be there and what that would look like and feel like and, I don't know, smell like? I mean, (laughs) it'd be cool if that smelled different. Uh, It might actually smell different. Uh, Yes, of course. You know, you always want to transport yourself to other worlds. Humans took four billion years to arrive at a place where we're driving cars on the freeway. So 500 million years after the Big Bang, there's not likely to be intelligent species, but who knows, really, there could be. Uh, But pretending that there was, and we were sitting on a planet in a galaxy like this, the sky would look completely different. Our sky is dark. There's a, we can see a few hundred, perhaps a few thousand stars. If you lived in one of these galaxies, there's the same number of stars that is in our galaxy, except it's about 30 times more compact. So the sky would be bright with stars. And these stars aren't old stars like we have in our galaxy. These stars are new, young stars. And so they're really bright. And there's all of these stars that are forming. And stars form in these clouds of gas and dust. And when they form, they illuminate the clouds that they live in. and Like we think we live in a milky way. Mm-hmm. We would have really been in a milky, incandescent, mm-hmm. sparkling world. Yes. It would be like neon. You know, you can think of these clouds or these bright pink and blue and green. You know, the northern lights light up the sky oh, yeah. because with ionized particles, there would be all of these bright ionized bubbles in the sky with all this new star formation. Okay, Erica, what are the chances you're wrong about this? Is it possible the data are misguiding you about how quickly these early galaxies formed? Absolutely. We have already found out we're wrong about one of these objects, which turns out to actually be a supermassive black hole in formation, uh, which is really exciting in its own right. Um, So we're hoping to get additional information about these from the telescope to confirm if we're right or see if we're wrong. And these are some other kind of really weird objects that we haven't seen before. That's always possible. We haven't seen galaxies with 
or any objects with properties like these. So no matter what it is, they're going to be really interesting. A property like what? They're super, super red. They're really bright and they're really red. And we haven't seen objects like this before because we haven't been able to detect them with previous telescopes. Are you inventing words for them? <laughs> like, in other words, if you haven't seen something before, what do you use as the vocabulary? Um, in papers, we are technical about it and we call them very red galaxies. <laughs> Amongst ourselves, we call them the universe breakers. <laughs> the universe breakers. It's sort of breaking your immediate universe and our understanding of the full universe. Yes, because if they are correct, it truly has implications for how our universe formed. It has implications for our models of the universe. And that model of the universe underlies everything we think we know about our origins. It tells us when the universe formed, how it grew, and what its ultimate fate is going to be, whether we're going to end in a big rip or a big crunch, like a candy bar. It determines everything we think we know about the, the universe we live in. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Erica Nelson is an assistant professor of astrophysical and planetary sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder. She's co-written a paper published today in the journal Nature. And we'll be right back with a family history told through dumplings. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org. There's a big metal tray in front of me, the industrial kind they use in restaurants. It's on a counter in a prep kitchen in northeast Denver. This tray fills up with dumplings. Every 20 seconds or so, there's another one ready to be cooked and served from a food truck called Yuan Wonton. Hopefully by the end of the day, we'll have just shy of 4,500 roughly. 4,500 dumplings in a day. Penelope Wong runs Yuan Wonton, which is enormously popular, judging by how fast people snap up anything she makes available for sale online. Now she's supporting Mile High Asian Food Week, which starts today. She's also a semifinalist for a regional James Beard Award. We visited her kitchen to talk about her varied career and what food means to her. The day we dropped in, Wong was preparing Hainan chicken dumplings. Basically, we took a very, very traditional Chinese dish, um, Hainanese chicken and rice, and we're doing it in dumpling form. It's got, you know, all the aromatics, loads of ginger, fresh garlic, scallion oil. It's just one of those dishes from childhood that is very comforting. Pure nostalgia. Pure nostalgia. Um, we wanted to put it in dumpling form. You are pinching closed these small pancakes, essentially, and creating the most beautiful top on them. What is the verb you use for this? Is it pinching? Is it... Pinching, pleating, folding, turning. It's, um, oh, say that one more time. Pinching, pleating, folding, turning. <laughs> I love it. Okay, it's so poetic. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Uh, oh, that's in one sort of fell swoop that you're doing. Yes. Here. So pinch, pleat, 
pinch, pleat, fold, pinch, pleat. See, I can't say that five times fast. <laughs> and swirl. <laughs> swirl is at the end. Do your hands get tired at the end of the day? Yes. Do you have any like regimen for caring for them? No. No. <laughs> Stretching. <laughs> oh, you have like I mean, hand stretches? Not really. I just, it's one of those, you just deal with it. Um, I don't know, I have a very high tolerance for pain. And is this meditative work? Is it boring after a it's, while? No, it's absolutely cathartic. Um, w when I ran the, the country club, like another lifetime ago. Um, yeah, this, this was earlier in your culinary career. Yeah, I, I, you were at Glenmore Country Club mm -hmm. in Cherry Hills Village. Glenmore Country Club, spent probably far too long there. <laughs> you were the, the club's first female and youngest executive yes. chef. Yeah. Um, with that role, especially in that arena, comes with a lot of paperwork, a lot of admin. You know, I had a giant team to run. And I've never been one of those chefs that just kind of hung out in the office. I've always been hands-on, wanted to be on the line, wanted to be in fire. So I would come up with these ridiculous prep lists for our busiest night of the week. Pasta from scratch, gnocchi from scratch, you know, hundreds of orders. And it was selfishly for my own catharsis. Oh, so that you to could get be out of the office, exactly. In that kitchen exactly. environment with a lot of labor. Exactly. That's where you're happiest. Yes. I think of the cuisine at places like that. I don't necessarily think of strong flavors. Maybe I think of like hamburgers and I don't know, Swiss steak. What was it like working at a country club? I had absolutely no idea what I was doing when I first got hired on there. You know, that part of my life, it was sheer survival mode. I was a single mother. Um, I had a one-year-old son and I literally just graduated from college and I, just, I needed to support my son. And when I had actually applied there, I initially applied as a banquet server because that's just what I saw in the classifieds. And when I met with the food and beverage director at the time, she looked at my resume and I mean, my resume was, you know, just working for my family's restaurants. And she said, do you want me to give this to the chef? And I said, honestly, I don't care. I just need a job. Hmm. And so she did. She passed it along to the chef and I met with him and he hired me as a, a pantry cook. And I was, okay, sure. And at this point, you know, my exposure to like professional kitchens was PBS and Jacques Pepin, you know. Mm. Um, you would watch those oh, shows as kids. Absolutely. And um, when I first stepped foot in the kitchen, I was like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. They put me in the pantry station. They taught me how to make the salad and the sandwich. And the whole night of service, I'm like, what the hell is so great about a Cobb salad? Like, it's gross. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm like, oh my God, who wants to eat a club sandwich for dinner? And, um, you know, going through the next few years was, was, it was pretty rough. Um, I was the only woman. There was, a, I mean, harassment on every single level, as you can imagine. And, you know, when I got hired on, they told me that they were actually shocked the front of the house because I was the only woman that was hired into the kitchen in quite some years at that point. Oh. But, you know, you work your way up. Um, there was one gentleman who was very kind to me, who was, you know, very father figure to me. So he kind of took me under his wing and, and you know, eventually I, I worked my way up through every station and was promoted to, to sous chef within a couple of years. I acted as interim chef for, I think twice before they offered me the position. Of executive Of chef. executive. And 
when I had to do my first menu change as exec, I was like, okay, I have no idea what to put on this menu because- right. And do you make it a drastic change or right. a subtle change? And there was, it was, it was pretty rocky. Um, and so I, th I thought, okay, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna just kind of run a few specials just to kind of test the waters. Like what? And I was running stuff that I was cooking out of my dad's kitchen at the restaurant. Different noodle dishes. And the first time I ran a noodle dish, it was just like a, a stir fried lo mein noodle, an egg noodle. And I went out, you know, and asked the member how everything was. And he said, what kind of noodles are these? And he was just kind of dumbfounded. And he was like, this is amazing. And it just kind of took off. But you had known kitchens your whole life. I mean, what was different about the country club one? Professional kitchens, the country club kitchen, compared to the kitchens that I grew up in, vastly different. You know, you, when you go to, to work in a professional kitchen, most kitchens have a brigade system in place. You know, they've got different stations. They've got so many employees and you're responsible for your station. Whereas, you know, the, the restaurants, that, the kitchens that I grew up in, you're doing everything. You know, there's maybe three people in the, the running the whole show and you're doing everything. And in most Asian kitchens, is there's no recipes. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, oh. and just you taste it. You know, you go into a professional kitchen, they've got their recipe books, everything is measured out in grams. So it took a while. Things long, are weighed. Absolutely. So um, it was going into a very regimented environment. Very, mm -hmm. very. And there was no deviation. Um, when I was promoted to Garmage, um, I was responsible for making all of the salad dressings for the club. What's that word? Garmage. Okay, that's, um, that's part of the battalion? Correct. Or brigade, brigade. Yes, brigade. Okay. And so I was making all the, the salad dressings and, and, and cold prep, but I was really just kind of appalled the first time I had made the recipe for the Caesar dressing, just because of, number one, the in ingredients in there and just kind of the the technique and, and, and emulsification and I went rogue with it. You know, I kept the ingredients mainly the same. I just kind of tweaked a couple of amounts, but I went rogue with it. And this is just kind of based off of like what I had seen watching the TV shows that I was watching the cooking shows. And we actually had one of the members call the chef and she said, I'm coming in to pick up two quarts of this dressing, whatever you have done to it, keep it that way because it's actually amazing now and you know the, the, I got called in the chef's office and he was so mad oh he was mad oh I was in so much trouble because I deviated without talking to him about it first and I, I kind of went rogue with my own recipe and um yeah I, I yeah <laughs> you talked a little earlier about nostalgia and yes. that these dumplings these chicken dumplings in particular these wontons are pure Nostalgia. So who is it that pops into your mind as you make them? Definitely my grandmother. The first time I learned how to pleat a dumpling, well, I wouldn't say I learned the first time I, she tried to teach me. <laughs> um, it's an art that takes time, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I, I would sit there and watch her do it. And, and it's funny because the first time I tried to teach Nock, my sous chef here, how to pleat them, it was kind of reminiscent of that that moment because my grandma sat there and she said, just do it this way. And I sat there and I tried and I was like, I just can't do it. And I hate to say this, but you know, anyone Asian really knows this, but when she yelled at me, it wasn't out of meanness. It was actually quite enduring, but the literal translation is awful. <laughs> of what she would say to you? Yes. Um, do you want to tell me? Well, it just, it, in Chinese it's, 
um, oh, what do I want to say? Because anyone that understands Chinese is going to be like, oh, that's rude. <laughs> <laughs> she said, I say nui bao. <laughs> and it's kind of like, oh, you stupid girl. But in Chinese, it's actually endearing and, and, and it's out of love. Oh. But the first time I had, had sat down with Nock to try to teach her, she was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I found myself like trying to like, well, I mean, it's just kind of innate, I guess. But she was like, stop yelling at me. <laughs> you had adopted your grandmother's stance. Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. How long did it take you to learn then until you felt like you were good at it? Oh, not until my adult years, for sure. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Um, years of years, mastery. Years, 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 um, years. And not even until we decided to give the full commitment to starting this business that I really, really sat down and, you know, cause we had months and months of building the truck out. And so I was doing a lot of R and D work, um, recipe testing, and obviously, you know, trying to get faster at this. Um, so every time I would make a batch of filling and dough at home, I would time myself to try to get faster and faster and faster. Oh wow! So it really wasn't until we went full force with this project that, you know, I got as good at these as I am now. Well, so what's your record for dumpling, pleating, pinching speed? Wontons, I can do a pan of about 210 in about 12 to 15 minutes. Wow. Pot stickers take a little longer. Pot stickers, I can do about three per minute. And I haven't actually timed myself with this particular fold. Now, I'm curious, the business is yuan wonton. Yes. Is that like after the Chinese currency, yuan? Happenstance, yes. Happenstance. Um, so we, we, when we were talking about our name for the truck. Uh, <laughs> and let me say that people can order one of two ways. Yes. They can order in advance yes. through Instagram, right? It's, we have a square site. Okay. And, and pre-ordering is live the day before every single scheduled pop-up starting at 10 a.m. Then you've got the food truck where you can buy direct. Correct. And you're often selling out when it comes to the pre-orders, aren't you? Usually every time, yeah. Wow, okay. So this idea of Yuan. So it's a funny story with my husband. He was talking to one of my aunts who has a pretty heavy accent. And he was like, I want you to say, do you want a wonton? And she was like, you want wonton? Ah, and it just kind of stuck. And you so, want wonton. Correct. Like, you want, do you want a wonton? And then, you know, as we were going, we were like, actually, that's the Chinese currency. So it's kind of perfect. Yeah, that's this man right here. Everyone, this is Rob. Well, I wonder if cooking connects you to other people, other bits of nostalgia. It absolutely does. Um, Who else? So, you know, I lost my, my, my mother at a very young age. I was 16 when she passed. Having a very, very tight-knit family, you know, we had giant family gatherings every weekend, every Sunday. And, you know, I lost my mother, lost my grandmother, lost my grandfather, and then lost my father. Um, and so it's kind of- All in of, the span of how long? Oh, like 10 years. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of grief in that yes, period. Yes, But when you start to lose family at such a young age, there's so many questions that you have. And there's so many questions I wish I would have asked. Um, that I never did. Like what? Just what it was like for them growing up in Thailand when they first came over. My father, how he learned how to cook. He's the one that taught me how to cook in the kitchen at the restaurant. They and had a restaurant, your folks? Yes, yes. So they owned a restaurant in North Denver for over 25 years. 
as a child, I was always eager to go to the restaurant to help out because my, my older brother used to go to the restaurant a lot. What kind of a restaurant was it? Was it was a Chinese restaurant. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, long before, like Starbucks now, Chinese restaurant every corner. So, you know, it was a rarity, um, it's Cantonese menu. When I first went to the restaurant to help out, very quickly, within just a couple of months, I would start migrating into the kitchen to hang out with my dad. And sure enough, you know, he started teaching me little things of prep. And my first knife that I ever learned on was a Chinese butcher knife, a Chinese cleaver. You know, I, I could break down a whole chicken by the age of 12. It just, it, it was very, very natural to me, the cooking aspect. And I was able to run that whole kitchen by the time I was 16. Wow. And that was the same age you lost your mom. Right. Um, and that was actually the first moment that I had to run the kitchen was when she was in the hospital because my dad had to leave. And there's a lot of things that I wish I would have asked my family, but the memories that I do have, they surround food. And so, you know, the dishes that I cook, <clears throat> a lot of the dishes from, from my grandmother's kitchen, it's kind of my way of holding on to them. It's interesting because it occurs to me that the movement is a memory too. You know, they talk about muscle memory. Yeah. And so it's as if you have kind of like brain memories of them, but also muscle memory of them. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. I actually, I, I, I noticed this last night. I was prepping in, in the truck and... You know, I have a, a stovetop with six different burners on it, and I have so many pans at my disposal, but <clears throat> I have like two favorite pans. And despite the number of items I was making, I was timing it out so I could use the same two pans, which is funny because it just dawned on me last night that my grandmother used to do the same thing. Hmm. She had just her favorite pans that she would use. I know that wontons are also a way for you to connect with the community. Yes. I was moved when I read that you made rainbow wontons for Club Q. Yes, um, community is a big, big part of our, our business model. One of the reasons why actually I wanted to leave my last post. At the um, country club? Just because it, it's such a bubble. As I count, I think you've got about 120 wontons there now. I'll take your word for it. Okay, I, I did some very quick Math. Rows of 16. I yeah. <laughs> and will these get fried then? So we flash, we, we have to flash freeze these. Okay. So we'll flash freeze them until our service. Um, now, will these be fried or steamed? Pan fried. These will be pan fried. Mm -hmm. What do you use for oil? I'm curious. We use a very neutral oil, canola. Canola. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you have to test I'm that? I'm swap over here to this other one. Oh, yes. Yes, I did a lot of testing. Now we're moving from kind of beige wrappers to green ones. So these are our Szechuan eggplant dumplings. These are our vegan dumplings. Mm. When I was doing a lot of R&D work, you know, I realized we have to have a vegetarian vegan option. I actually took a dish that was just a dish that I, I, I enjoyed snacking on every now and then. I was like, I wonder how this would taste in a dumpling. <laughs> and so I started messing with it and I made them for Rob and I said, try this. And he said, what is it? And I said, well, it's eggplant. He's like, I don't know, I'm good. <laughs> He's like, do we have any bacon or anything? <laughs> and I said, just try it. And he tried it and he was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, and that's kind of been the response on these. Surprisingly, it was supposed to be just a dumpling to have as our vegan option. And it's actually like become a fan favorite. Is there a place you go to mentally, a, a, somewhere from your childhood you actually picture when you're doing this? 
there's various places, um, but every single time it's a kitchen. It's a kitchen. It's either in the kitchen at home with my grandmother, in the back prep kitchen of my dad's restaurant, in the kitchen of, you know, I have a extended family who owned restaurants all throughout Denver, um, and I would kind of hop around to each restaurant to help out whoever needed it. Huh. So it's usually always in some kitchen. Did you like working at that age? I never considered it work, to be honest. You know, when I look back, it's funny because Obviously, it was free labor to my parents, but... <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. Thank you for saying it for me. No, it was obviously free labor for my parents, but at the same time, it was the best education of my life. Here you are, now nominated for a regional James Beard Award. The Oscars of food, as they've been dubbed. I have no idea how that even happened. <laughs> I, <laughs> there's still a part of me that thinks someone's losing their job over this giant, giant mistake. <laughs> okay, this was not something you necessarily had set out Absolutely to do or be? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When they made the announcements that morning, um, we were actually at our daughter's Chinese New Year performance, and my phone just suddenly just started going crazy. And I, I opened it up and I saw, you know, the, the threads and just, you know, congratulations and woohoo and oh my gosh. And I was looking at the people sending it and I thought, oh my gosh, she had her baby. And so I opened up the thread and they sent me a screenshot and I was like, what the hell is this? And I'm reading it, reading it, and I'm like, no. And I just started crying. Because I had, no, I mean, just. Not on your radar not at, all. at all. Did you even know that was the day of nope. the announcement? Nope. So you nope. weren't waiting that morning with bated nope. breath. Absolutely. Wow. So do you have any idea then, I guess not, of how this came to be? Nope. I actually asked in the thread, I said, okay, well, first of all, tell me the process because I don't even know how this happened. Right. Um, Did someone nominate me? I guess. Uh, yeah. It, it, I was, we were reading through the process and just reading through the process made me even more dumbfounded because I'm like, someone actually nominated me? <laughs> And you don't um, know who that someone is? No. My goodness. I would love to know. Um, you know, I've always had a certain idea of, of who you know, I picture when I think of like James Beard chefs. Yeah. Never ever would I have imagined, you know, myself being even in that same category. Why? The foods that I cook are the foods that I love. Yeah. Very rarely are you going to find anything that comes out of my kitchen that I won't eat myself. Like, for instance, you know, at the club, like, I never did split pea soup, so I'm like, that's gross. <laughs> <laughs> that's just disgusting, and I just won't do it. Um, and I think in my 20-year tenure there, we actually had it on the menu as soup of the day once, and it was because I was out of town. And someone, like, actually requested it. <laughs> and so what, you thought you were too niche? Just kind of not at that level. Hmm. Um, I think of James Beard chefs as just incredibly creative, incredibly brilliant. The, their skill, their technique is just, you know. Yeah, but here you are making an eggplant wonton, but gorgeously this forming to me is it. Just, this to me is just, it's innate. It's what we learned as kids. It's, uh -huh. you know, it's, it's an incredible feeling, like I said. Is your mission to give people the comfort you had as a kid, is it to expose them to new things and new flavors? For sure, 100%. On both? Absolutely. Okay, all of them. Um, it. It's really personal to me because growing up Asian American in Denver, um, I'm a Denver native, and growing up Asian American in Denver wasn't quite as, for lack of a better word, cool as I guess it can be now. It wasn't as, I don't want to say easy either because I know that there's still a lot of uh, difficulties. But 
I was bullied a lot. I was made fun of. Um, kids can be mean, you know, and there's certain things that, you know, I would, I would have to bring to school for lunch. And, you know, I remember I would beg my mom to just make me a simple ham sandwich. And, I, and the thing is, like, I knew I would never, I was never even going to eat it because I just, it was gross. You know, I wanted, you know, whatever the leftovers from dinner was the night before. That's what I really wanted. You didn't actually want the ham sandwich. No, I just didn't want to be made fun of that day. You wanted what to I fit was bringing. in. Exactly. And that was the norm when I was growing up. And so... Did she ever make you a ham sandwich? Oh, yeah. And it was disgusting. It was disgusting. <laughs> it was gross. And what would you have preferred specifically? Anything we had for dinner the night before. Anything at all? Anything that my grandma made for dinner the night before. Okay. Um, what was her best dish? She had so many, so many. I don't know, it usually involved rice. Uh -huh. <laughs> Every single meal was rice. But you bring these, these meals to school and, and these kids are like, what is that smell? Or, I mean, it was traumatizing. And, you know, when you look at today's culture, you know, before COVID, when my daughter, we, I would pack her lunch to school and, you know, they didn't have any major restrictions at school on sharing and whatnot. And, for a while there, she was asking for dumplings for lunch. I was like, okay, sure. Oh. And I would pack her dumplings for lunch. And then the next day, she would ask for dumplings again, and she would ask for more. And I'm like, <laughs> are you actually eating all these? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally, like days later, I'm like, there is no way you're eating all these. And she's like, okay, I'm sharing with so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And I'm like, Okay, that's actually kind of cool. Such a difference from what you experienced. Absolutely. And the fact that she can grow up in such a positive environment, so different from my experience, is just, it's such a good feeling. And if we can be a part of just kind of that, that education, you know, to help others understand the foods that are important to our culture, I'm totally here for it. Penelope's gone to wash her hands a bit as She's finished filling this giant tray of wontons. Now you've advised on Asian Food Week and what, what do you hope to achieve with it? You know, when the opportunity first came about, I thought, of course, this is exactly what our, our community needs right now. There's so many people that move here from, you know, either coast. And the one thing I hear across the board is, you know, there's not a very big Asian community here. And there's not when you look at the big percentage, but when you look at the concentration in certain areas, um, it's massive. And there's so much that people just don't know about. In certain parts of town that, that a lot of people don't venture to. But, you know, again, we touched on just how personal this is to me. If we can help get the word out and help share about the foods that are important to our cultures, I want to be 100% on board. Because this we... is about elevating both those foods and the people who make them, I gather? Absolutely. There's a level of support in the Denver community for the AAPI community that I never knew existed growing up as a child here. I never knew existed. And, you know, over the last few years, when we've seen the, just the spike in, in anti-Asian hate crimes. I have seen personally, I've seen Denver show up on different levels and it's incredible to see that this place that I've called home my entire life that there's actually more to it than what I gave it credit for. Hmm. Um, it has surprised you. Absolutely. As so, she grabs another tray 
<laughs> and starts a whole 300. Wow. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> well, Penelope, it's been a delight to talk to you and to watch you say it again. Pinch. Pinch, pleat, fold, swirl. Yeah. I think that's what I said, isn't it? Thank Pinch, you. Pleat, thank you so fold, much. Swirl. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Denver chef Penelope Wong of Yuan Wonton, her food truck will soon make way for a brick and mortar store in Denver's North Park Hill neighborhood. Construction's begun and they hope to open by summer. James Beard finalists are announced March 29th. By the way, we'll link to Mile High Asian Food Week in today's podcast at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. The sounds in nature are like the voices of friends. I know when I hear the first robin every spring what that means. The sound of wind in trees, the bugle of elk. Those are the memories that become the soundtrack to our lives. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. For months, my co-host has been working to bring you a story in honor of Black History Month. She's done lots of interviews and research to learn about an aspect of Black history she hadn't known much about. And finally, we're going to share this project with you tomorrow on Colorado Matters. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield is here with us today with a preview. Hi, Chandra. Hi, Ryan. How exciting for us to be in a studio together. It's a nice feeling. (laughs) And tell us about this project that you have been working on. So this is a story of a Colorado man by the name of William Bebe Richardson. And you will hear why he's called Bebe in this piece. He is a part of Black History in sports history, and he had played in the Negro Baseball League, and there are parts of his playing days that even his kids didn't know about, and he made history as a Negro Baseball League player, but he also had his second chapter, which allowed him to touch the lives of hundreds of kids in the Metro Denver area. How'd you come up with the idea to write and report on this? Well, his granddaughter, Ashley, is a family friend, and we'd happened to talk the day after he passed away, and she mentioned that he had been a Negro Baseball League player. And I asked for his name, and eventually I jumped on the Internet to look up what I could find out about him. And there was nothing. Could find nothing about him. This was a story waiting to be told. What can we hear from the piece as a preview today that won't give away too much, Chandra? We're going to share with you the very beginning of the piece, and it's it's not as sort of sets the tone for it, but it also gives you an indication of how his children found out that their dad had actually been a part of sports history. They said, you're a pretty fair hitter. So they says. <laughs> well, hit this. One night in the 70s, Marcus Richardson had just sat down to watch TV with his brothers and sisters and their dad. It was something they did pretty often as a family. I think we had a family room in the back. Yeah, it used to be a porch built into a family room, and we were all gathered around the TV in that room. But this night at their house in Denver turned out to be special. Marcus and his sister Terry, who you heard in the background, remember exactly what was on the TV. This movie called The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars in Motor King. Hey, 
It was about an all-black baseball team playing and traveling across America at a time when baseball was not racially integrated. Marcus's dad had a reason he wanted to watch it. We start watching the movie, and he starts explaining to us, hey, yeah, this really happened. Marcus was in junior high at the time. Immediately, his ears perked up. And he was telling us that that was the time when I used to play. I used to play in a league like that. That's a taste of what's coming up tomorrow. And will we hear from Mr. Richardson himself, Chandra? Well, that's what makes it so exciting. We do get to hear from Richardson in his own words. His family had the forethought to record him. And you get to hear him in his own words. And that's really exciting. Chandra, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. My co-host Chandra Thomas-Whitfield with a preview of her Black History Month project. It premieres tomorrow right here. A new play set at the height of the jazz era imagines life inside a historic hotel in Denver's Five Points. Here's CPR's Eden Lane. The title character in Jeff Campbell's new play, Bobby Trombone, is an archetype of every unsung hero in jazz and the creative self-expressions of black Americans in communities like Five Points. Campbell focused on telling the story from a local perspective. Well, you know, we often talk about, hey, the glorious past of jazz in, in Five Points. But who do we remember? We remember Duke Ellington. We remember Dinah Washington. We remember Lionel Hampton. But what about the everyday people of Five Points that were actually a part of the community that made the culture so viable and vibrant for those passing through on the jazz circuit? The people who lived here, who made it Five Points. Who made it Five Points, exactly. That's, and so that's kind of the essence of what uh, Bobby Trombone is about. He's, he's really trying to get recognition for his part in uh, the jazz uh, story. This fictionalized history of jazz in Five Points and how it came to be known as the Harlem of the West captured the attention of theater artibus co-founders Megan Frank and Buba Bashisvili. The married couple have also been the proprietors of event and performance space The Savoy since 2018, where they collaborate with creators beyond their own theater company. We were really interested in a broader sense, finding a way to support local independent arts of all sorts of genres. And we found the opportunity here at the Savoy to be something that felt like really synergetic for the work we wanted to do. And also the idea and hope we had for the arts in Denver to thrive. Campbell's new play hit the right note. And his desire to create a story about the history of jazz, but also about the black community in Denver, both past, present, future, and his commitment to creating emancipation theater as a place of deep listening and also of like broad telling that we were really excited to be and collaborating. Humor. And humor, yeah. And um, humor plays a big part in yeah. this very hard theme. Though the Rossonian Hotel, the site of a famous jazz club in Five Points, is not available yet, Campbell acknowledges there is something poetic about telling this story in this space at the Savoy. The Savoy is a very historic space, and I have quite a bit of history here. Actually, before uh, the folks um, from Theater Artibus became a part of it, I was the manager here. I used to mop the floor in this place. The Savoy is from the same era, and those souls are in the timbers of the building as they tell this story. It feels like the right thing to do. It feels like what we're supposed to do. We get disconnected from our ancestors and our and our stories, 
And, you know, our bodies, they don't live forever, but our stories do. And we magnify our own presence when we connect with the um, ancestors whose shoulders we stand on. We're walking in right in the same footsteps down the same streets that they were walking and talking and experiencing the same thing. So, so it feels like it feels like being alive. Campbell uses his work to do more than entertain. He sees it as a critical education mission. If we can't tell the stories of African Americans in a classroom, then it is our duty as artists to take up the mantle and and tell the stories regardless of the laws that they pass to silence our history, to silence our, our struggle. We are all story. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. In the Pocket, the ballad of Bobby Trombone plays through Saturday at the Savoy, Denver. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. 